surprise I'm behind you. <laughs> my name is Jordan. I'm on the staff team here, and it's my joy to be able to, uh, to preach. It's my second Sunday in a row, so um, uh, I don't know what to say about that, but hey, there's the facts, right? Um, no, it's my joy to be able to just bring God's word to you today and just kind of jump right on in to, to where we've been. And so let's just do a, a little bit of... of a catch-up, um, just spend a, a minute, uh, just to let you know that we are at the tail end of a series we started a couple weeks ago called The Road to Easter. And um, it, it's crazy to me that next week is Easter. Like, we've been on this journey. Um, our Lent season has lasted for um, six weeks now, and now we're at this very tail end, Palm Sunday. Easter is coming tomorrow, uh, sorry, ne- not tomorrow, but next Sunday, right? Um, it's funny because, it's not funny, but, but it's, it's true in my own heart that I think we've done such a, a job of preparing our hearts and getting ready for Easter that my heart is just ready for what is, is to come. And so, uh, but before we go there, let's just not move forward too quickly. Let's, let's end um, our, our series really well as we've been spending a few weeks in the book of John, uh, specifically looking at chapter 12. And so we're, we're going to finish up this chapter today. Got a question for you as we, we dive on in this morning. Have you ever experienced something that has changed your life and changed it in the way that you think and behave? Have you ever experienced something that changed your life so dramatically that it changed the way that you think and you, that you behave? Second question, how did people around you, people you're in relationship with, respond to your experience with that thing? I think there's few things in our lives that have the ability to change us that dramatically and possibly that quickly, um, but one of those things is obviously love. We all, at some point or another, experience some level of love, or we desire to experience a level of love. Love has caused me to do some ridiculous and stupid things. I don't know what your experience has been, but that's been my journey and my experience. Do you remember the first time that you ever fell in love? You know, we all have our own journeys. We all have our own experiences. Some of people um, have their first crushes when they're five years old. Some people wait until they're in high school or college. But I, I think that, that we all kind of have this journey of remembering back to the first time that we actually fell in love. The first step for us to recognize is playground love, right? You guys know what playground love is? This is where my first love came into place. I was, fifth, uh, I was five years old in kindergarten. Um, again, I've, I've told this before, her name was Shelly McGuire. I don't know why I remember that today. I'm almost 40 years old, and I remember what happens in a small town in East Texas at a playground. And playground love really centers on us doing ridiculous and stupid things to get the attention of the opposite sex, right? If you're not chasing them around the playground, then you're throwing balls in their face. Like, hey, right, get to notice me. Hey, don't you think I'm cute? No, you just hit me in the face with a ball. Um, anyway, that's probably what we would categorize as playground love. If it's not playground love, then we move over into middle school love. Aha, caught half of your attention. This is the most awkward kind of love. Our hormones are raging, they're brand new in our system, and we just don't know what to do with ourselves, right? 
and we find ourselves potentially doing some of the dumbest things because we're just so in love. We're experiencing it maybe for the first time. And lastly, well, maybe not lastly, but the last thing I'm going to mention is high school love. And I'm going to say that high school love, I think, may be the worst kind of love because we have everything from freshmen to seniors, right? And, and I say that kind of half meaning the maturity level is so great, but I've actually seen some freshmen who are a lot more mature when it comes to things like this than actual seniors, People's experiences are so much more real. It's not just playground love. It's not brand new, like middle school, hormones are kicking in kind of love. I'm supposed to hate the opposite sex, but I actually crush the opposite sex. Now we are in this place of just saying, hey, this is who we are, and we've figured it out. No one can tell me right from wrong, right? Few people in high school do it well and do it right. Majority of people, what their experience is, is that they lose all inhibitions. Uh, it, they, all inhibitions go in the trash cans, uh, and the world revolves around the other person, and there's no one else that can ever enter into that story. Depending on the maturity level of us, that stage of life could actually last until we're 30 years old. Did you know that um, right now, the, the, I take an adolescent psychology as a class, and I learned that adolescence kicks, uh, can stick around until you're 30 years old. Uh, I'm not gonna give you a lecture on this, but do you realize that 150 years ago, like there was no such things as adolescence, as the season of life whenever a child is becoming an adult. Now we're here in 2019, and some people never ever leave that and go into anything else other than immaturity. No, please don't elbow the person sitting next to you. It's not that kind of sermon, I don't think, anyway. Um, regardless, though, when people fall in love, there's always going to be critics. No matter if you're in elementary, middle school, high school, college, right? There's people that are going to be in the periphery who are watching your experience, and they are the love experts, and they will let you know exactly what you're doing right, but more importantly, exactly what you're doing wrong. Uh, my wife and I, Stacy, we, we received our fair share of criticism whenever we decided to get married. Um, don't get me wrong, I don't want to paint a picture like we did everything perfect and that um, people were ridiculous for having questions. Well, let me just go into to my story just a little bit. So my wife and I, we met when we were 18 years old. We were engaged at 21, married at 22, and then we had our first kid at 23. Um, and so like, th there are lots of things that go on within that, that phase of life. Our, our story, again, not perfect, but I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, within those three years that we were dating, we probably spent more time broken up than we actually were together. Um, and... We both had a hand in that. I'll just say, we had two breakups. I took charge of one of them. She took charge of the other one. Um, for my story, you know, I, I centered on um, this idea that, man, God told me to break up with you, and so that's why I'm breaking up with you right now. Um, because I was super spiritual, and I was in tune with the Spirit, and I knew what God wanted from me. No, no, no. I crushed someone else, and I was too chicken to actually tell her that I crushed someone else. And so, of course, I blamed God for all of my insecurities. Anyway, wouldn't recommend that to anyone in this room. Um, 
Hers isn't quite so dramatic and bad as that, but she broke up with me whenever I was on a mission trip uh, 3,600 miles away, and her excuse was she needed space. I'm just like, <laughs> how much more space you need? Do I need to go to China? Like, what, where, do I, where do I need to go? Uh, we are not perfect in this thing called love, right, in our, in our experience. Um, needless to say, some people didn't think that it was a good idea that we got married, <laughs> People looked at us and they said, man, two breakups? Like, really? You get back together the third time and within three months later, we were engaged to be married? Yeah, people had a right to question. Uh, some people saw us. They saw our immaturity and they saw our selfishness. Some people, um, they were able to, to see our sarcasm and we had a lot of sarcastic things coming at each other. That's part of our love language was sarcasm. My mom in particular looked at her, me and she said, you just talk to her like, you're just so mean to her. <laughs> are you ready for this? Um, Stacy's mom, the day that we got married, told her, hey, it's okay if you back out. I'm not going to judge you. <laughs> now, in full disclosure, she meant it. In full disclosure, I believe that she meant it in love. She meant it in, uh, hey, you haven't gone too far. If you're having doubts, don't do something that you're really doubting, right? It's not because she questioned my leadership, manhood, authority. No, it had nothing to do with that. She just had great love for her daughter. Um, anyway, what, but in, in all seriousness, though, what some people fail to see in us is what we felt when we were together, what we saw, what we experienced with one another. And our story is kind of ridiculous in lots of ways, but what we felt and what we experienced and who we were when we were together was extremely real they didn't see what we saw in each other. And what Stacey and I knew, and, and, and we knew that we were ridiculous in lots of ways, but what we knew is that we could not do life without each other. That's why we dove in. That's why we've lasted as long as we have, and we just continue to push through even the hard things because we know that not being together is actually worse than what we're experiencing when we are together. And we felt that way back whenever we decided uh, to get married. Today, I want us to see in our relationship with Jesus, it has the ability to do the very same thing and to have the same kind of effect. When we get into the place that we know that we cannot do life without Jesus anymore, that leads to a good place in our hearts and in our lives. That actually leads to the place of worship right? Whenever we're so in love with Jesus, we have no idea how to control ourselves. We have no idea what to think. We just feel or have experienced Jesus in a very unique way that the only thing left for, for us to do, the only thing left for our bodies to do and for our minds to do is just worship Jesus. John 12, I believe it's going to lead us to ask a question and answer this question as we continue on is do you see the ultimate beauty in Jesus? As we unpack what that means and as we see this in John chapter 12, it's also going to be paralleled with this staunch warning, a warning of something that the Israelites walked through, a rejection of who God is, unbelief of who Jesus is. And I hope that we see the ruts that they fell into to protect our hearts as we continue to pursue Jesus in this relentless type way. What I want us to see is this, is that the ultimate, I want us to see the ultimate beauty of Jesus. Now I want to stop and I want to pause just for a second. 
because I realize that this is Christianese. This is something that we, as followers of Jesus, can say, and we know what we mean, but maybe we don't know how that actually plays out. We know that we should love Jesus as ultimate, and we declare it, but our lives reflect something so much different. That's the kind of thing that I want us to drill in down to today as we, as pursuers of Jesus, reflect on this story that we see um, exactly how we see Jesus as beautiful or exactly how we struggle to see Jesus as beautiful. There are many things in this life that we experience that will rob us from the joy of following Jesus. There are emotions and there are situations in our lives that have the potential to lead us away from Jesus. We can leave our first love and go a totally different direction. But I'll also say that probably more importantly, there are things in our lives that slowly just chip away and rob us from the joy that we've experienced in Jesus. And we show up to church on Sunday mornings and we come and we sing songs, but over the months and over the years and over the decades, we become more and more jaded and we stop seeing the beauty of who Jesus is and we just find ourselves at a place that we never intended and we don't know how to get out of this place. We don't know what we're feeling. We don't know what we're experiencing, but we do know that we are failing to see the ultimate beauty in Jesus. So I want us to be awakened to this idea that Jesus is ultimately beautiful. And not only that, his beauty is ultimate in our lives. So let's turn to John chapter 12 and let's look at this text. Um, this text, at a first glance, it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily easy to swallow. There's sadness within the midst of this text. But I need us to remember one thing as we push forward today. And we're going to mention this a few different times at appropriate places. We must remember that God is good. All the time, God is good. Um, and we're aiming at something this morning even in the midst of something sad, that is ultimately beautiful for us as we continue to pursue Jesus. Let's just look at this text, and let's start reading in John chapter 12, verse 36, the second part of 36, uh, and we're just going to finish out the chapter together, and then we're going to just spend some time unpacking this. It starts off and says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still had not believed in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. He saw his glory and spoke of him. Verse 42, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Verse 44, so Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me uh, may not remain in darkness, but if 
uh, sorry, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. And the word uh, that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, um, has himself given me a command. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. What I want us to see at the very beginning of this text is just where Jesus is at and what he is doing in the midst of this. Remember where we were last week. Whenever we ended, Jesus was in the temple, we argued. He was in the temple surrounded by a crowd of people. There were two people, two specific types of people who came and, and asked questions to him. There were the Greeks and there were the others, the, 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 the doubters, the people who did not believe in Jesus. He answered the questions, he interacted with them. And then we enter into the second part of verse 36 and we see something pretty significant that John is pointing out to us. Um, and, and it just says that when Jesus had said these things, these things previously we talked about last week, he departed and he hid himself from them. This is a big deal in what John is saying, and here's why it's a big deal. It's a big deal because this is the end of Jesus's three-year ministry. Jesus just spent three years in ministry, traveling, walking, interacting with people, doing miracles, um, uh, casting out demons and doing things that were um, meant to lead people to know that A, he's the son of God and that B, they can find eternal life in him and that he and the father are one. This is what he spent so much of his time and his energy doing. So many times um, we see within the text of, of the gospels that, that Jesus departed. He went away to be alone or he fleed a situation because his time had not come yet. So it's not uncommon for Jesus to, to just need or want to get away for a moment or for a season, but what we see going on in this text right here is the end of his three-year journey, his three-year ministry. This is also a big deal, secondly, because the previous text was the last time that Jesus interacts with anyone in this gospel other than the, other than the disciples. He's turning his ministry away from the crowds, to his disciples as he says his final words in the final hours of his life as he prepares them for his departure. And lastly, this is a big deal that Jesus went and hid himself because the nation of Israel as a whole has rejected who Jesus is. As we mentioned in the previous weeks, the whole point of John's writing, John's gospels, is to highlight seven miracles that Jesus did. He said lots of other things, but there are seven miracles that Jesus did that prove that he is the son of God, to prove that we can believe in him and find life in him. But this is a turning point in this book because he's moving beyond the crowd. He's moving beyond the teaching to the masses because Israel as a whole has rejected him. Verse 37 says, though um, he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. 
sitting on this side of history, it is so easy for me to look at these Jewish people and judge them and say, how in the world did you miss it? I can guarantee you one of the most, um, what I would say, uh, probably one of the most, um, uh, I'm trying not to use a really derogatory word, but I'm just going to say it, probably one of the most dumb uh, Israelites in the first century, one of the most dumbest Jewish people probably knew more about the Old Testament than all of us in this room combined. It was ingrained in their culture so much that they, know, they knew the Old Testament and many, many, many of them had it memorized to where they could just quote scripture without ever cracking open the book. So these Jewish people knew the text. They knew what God was saying. They knew what God was doing. And they knew that everything was leading up to a Messiah, that what they were doing uh, in those moments, um, had, the new covenant was coming. The old covenant was gone. And then they have Jesus enter into the scene who are doing all of these signs and miracles the Holy Spirit is obviously working through. So sitting here in 2019, I can look back at them and say, how in the world did you miss who Jesus is when he spoke so clearly and so boldly about who he was? As I think about that, I'm reminded of the Exodus story. Are you guys familiar with, with what happened in the Exodus where Israel was enslaved in Egypt? And all of Israel saw what God did as he showed these signs to the Pharaoh so that Pharaoh can let Israel go. And I guarantee the last sign that they saw was one of the greatest signs, the death of the firstborn son. That if, that if Israel just obeyed the commands that God gave them, they would be spared from that. And they were and they did, and they fled the land of Egypt, and they went out into the wilderness. And as they were going out into the wilderness, Pharaoh decided to pursue, and what? The Red Sea is in the way. What did God do? God split the Red Sea for them to, part, uh, for them to cross on dry ground. That's not where the miraculous ends. They journey in the wilderness. They don't have any food. So what? Every single morning, manna drops from the heavens so they have something to eat Oh my gosh, now they're thirsty. So what does Moses do? He cracks on a, a rock and water flows and it, and it creates a lake and it's not salty. It is pure water for them to drink. God just continues to do the miraculous, but the people of Israel continue to moan and continue to complain and continue to doubt God. Huh. I, think, I think we're different I read this text, I'm like, how in the world did they not believe? I think that we, in this time period, are different, but our hearts are prone to wander from the God that we love. Our natural tendencies is to make ourselves ultimate and lose sight of the one who is ultimate, Jesus. We have to guard our hearts by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Do you know what I mean by that? Can you track with me? that we have to guard our, we have to protect our hearts, we have to pursue Jesus, keep our eyes on Jesus to protect us from falling into that same trap that so many before us, and even in our own time period, are falling into, because Jesus is ultimate, because he is beautiful. So Jesus goes, as Israel as a whole has rejected him, he goes and he hides himself. We don't know where he went, we don't know what he's doing, in the words following that, 
are John's words, John's um, thoughts into the matter. And we'll come back to that in a minute. The next time we see Jesus speaking is in John chapter, I'm oh, sorry, uh, yeah, John chapter 12, verse 44. Jesus is closing up his ministry, and this is a summary statement of everything that he was sent out to do. It's crazy to think about a three-year journey of who Jesus is, summarizing just a few sentences, but that's what we see here. So let's look at this. Let's read this together, and let's highlight um, a few things as we see Jesus' summary statement. And Jesus cried out, and he said, Whoever believes in him believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Let's just pause there for a second and just see this. What is Jesus emphasizing in his, um, in his summary statement? The first thing he's emphasizing is that him and the Father are one. That God has sent Jesus, and Jesus represents the Father, and they are one as they are acting together. This is huge because um, remember what, um, what the Jews did to be able to send Jesus to die. They accuse him of blasphemy. They want to worship God. They know who God is. They want to do what is best for their relationship with God the Father. And they thought Jesus was the one who was dividing them from the Father. But Jesus is making the declaration he had all along, all along saying that I and the Father are one. Continuing in verse 46, he says, I have come into the world as light, and whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This idea of Jesus being the light is something that Jesus capitalizes on so many times in the book of John, and in, in the other gospels as well, but John highlights it so many times. We see it in the text right before what we read last week, Jesus saying, follow the light and do not be in the darkness, that Jesus is the light. If you, uh, if you want, flip to, the, to John chapter 1, and we see the, the beginning of this book. We may know the first verses really well, but see this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, though. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning was the word. Speaking of Jesus, he was there from the beginning, and Jesus is this light, a theme that's gone all the way through John. So of course Jesus highlights this to say, if you remain in me, you will not be in the darkness at all. And the last thing that we see, verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me to say. He says to us, um, he says to us a call, a call to hear and embrace his words as Savior. He says to us that it is the Father's desire, it is God's desire that, um, that we have eternal life through Jesus. But unbelief in who Jesus is is disobedience. And judgment will be had for those who disobey 
if you're missing the point, it has eternal consequences. Don't miss the point. The Jewish brothers and sisters all around him did not believe. I want to make a turn and just see what's going on inside this text. What led them to not believe? This is where John unpacks a heartbreaking turn of events. Jesus' ministry, it's over. Jesus' ministry is over, and these people still do not believe. His ministry, though, Jesus' ministry is not a failure, even though they did not believe. This heartbreaking turn of events is intended to bring us ultimate hope and ultimate joy as we see Jesus for who he really is. What I want us to remember as we read this text is a few things, is that we have to remember that, A, God is good, that we are to see ultimate joy in the story of the unbelief of the Jews, and what God is doing, he is ultimately good, and that cannot be shaken inside of us. We also have to remember that Jesus just displayed that he is the Son of God. All of the, the verses and the chapters before leading up to this point, um, Jesus has just displayed on a very clear way that he is who he claimed to be. And lastly, we have to remember that the death of Jesus came at the hands of those who did not believe. There's no accidents in history. Jesus came into the world to die in the place of sinners. And in dying, Jesus became the savior of the world. Joy to the world is the result of the unbelief of Israel. Do you see how we can have such joy and travesty what God was doing and what the people's choices were led to this very uh, traumatic thing that they did not believe and that has eternal consequences, but ultimately it brings us joy as we're able to see who Jesus is as we strive to believe in him with all of our hearts. As we read this, what I want us to see is um, the tension that this passage of scripture holds the tension of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, the, the tension between God's plan and human decision. I mean, this is something I'm not able to fully wrap my mind around. I love studying these things, and I love having opinions, and, and I love talking about these things, but it is not something that's perfectly explained throughout Scripture. I don't um, know how these two things of uh, God's sovereignty and God's responsibility, work, I'm sorry, and human responsibility worked together. We just read in Scripture that they do. And this is what actually makes God pretty amazing, that he is sovereign over all, and we do have choice, and um, he is fully in control as we continue to leave, or sorry, as we continue to live. God is fully in control, fully in control. There's a lot that we can learn about God in Scripture, lots of things that lead us to hold things in tension, things like God's love and God's wrath, two ideas that are absolutely true about God, and we must hold them in tension. Things like God's grace and his call for our obedience, things like his sovereign election and our free will choice. 
To focus on one of these things and not the other is to have an incomplete understanding of who God is. We will never understand the depths of his love if we fail to see the fierceness of his wrath. We will never understand the depths of who God is if we don't understand that he is in control of all things. He's not just a time travel that can see the future, but he writes and he creates and he sets into motion all things. And yet, we are held responsible. And it's a beautiful marriage that God has all figured out. And we see this highlighted here in John chapter 12. Um, the first thing that I want us to see as, as we look at this is um, God planned for their unbelief. Let's look at this again, verse 37 through 40. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe, and that the word of God uh, spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed that, we have, um, that he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, he had blinded their eyes and their hearts um, uh, and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. First thing that we have to see is that um, God planned for their unbelief, knowing that, that Jesus had to die. God planned for this to, to happen. We read it in Acts chapter 2 of, of, of what is going on here, how it was God who sent Jesus to the cross through the hands of men. We cannot rob God of his glory and his joy by, by taking that away from him. But let's look at this, and it, I think this is what John really leads us to unpack, is how was Israel blinded? How was Israel um, hardened? And there's something for us to get and something for us to see here. In this text, we see Isaiah chapter uh, 53 being quoted and Isaiah chapter 6 being quoted. And let's just look at into the, uh, each of these individuallys and see how God had um, led Israel to be blinded. At first, we see this quote in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the passage of Scripture. If you, if you want to turn there, you can. Uh, it's a passage of Scripture called The Suffering Servant where Isaiah unfolded within that chapter what exactly was going to happen to Jesus on the cross, how he was going to be beaten and how he was going to be whipped and that he was going to be undeniable um, as, as a man and that he did it for our transgressions. We'll look at it here in a second. But this is what Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah. And John sees this and he's pointing to this. But this whole passage of Scripture in John, uh, sorry, Isaiah 53 verse 1 starts off, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? They did not believe Jesus was who he was because they expected Jesus to be something totally different than who he is. Isaiah 53 Chapter, or sorry, verse 2 and 3 give us more insight into what's going on in the hearts of those who are seeing Jesus. He said, For he, Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry, dry ground, he had no form of majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was born a man, he came from a human woman. 
So people are going to look at him, and, and that's first going to be the question. He had no majesty about him. There was not some kind of look of kingship or beauty about him that drew people to him to say, that must be the Messiah. At physical appearance, it drew people away from this idea of who Jesus is. Verse 3 in Isaiah 53, he was despised. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one of whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah prophesied, so because of the nature and character of the humanness of Jesus, people were going to look at him and not believe because they expected something totally different. So Israel's choice in Jesus' day to not believe and to reject Jesus as the suffering as servant all hinged on this idea that they expected something totally different. They had the chance to believe, but they believed something totally different. And God was in the midst of it all. The second quote that we see is from Isaiah chapter 6. Are you guys familiar with Isaiah chapter 6? This is a passage of Scripture where Isaiah gets his call from God. God, God interacts with him in a really miraculous way. In the first verses, Isaiah is, um, is presented to the throne room of God, and he sees God sitting on his throne, the train of his robe, filled the temple, and the angels were flying around God. This is the vision that Isaiah is seeing. Um, the angels, the seraphim, were flying around God, and they were declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The train of his robe fills the entire earth. Isaiah is absolutely undone with seeing who God is in this moment. He felt so unclean that we see the story that the angel comes and takes a coal and burns his mouth, which signifies um, him being repentant of his sinful heart and who he is because he's just been in the presence of the Lord. And then God called Isaiah, go, prophesy to the people, speak on behalf of me to the people. And when you do, Isaiah, I will tell you they will not listen to you. They are not ready to hear what I have to say, but you will go and you will say what I need to say. And God says, who will I send? Isaiah says, send me. I will go. Why did they reject? Why did the nation of Israel reject the words of Isaiah? Because Israel did not want to hear of God's majesty, God's glory, and God's power. Their choice was to reject the voice of God. <clears throat> John is drawing up these two images and saying there's human responsibility. We are not void of the human responsibility, but God being perfect knew exactly what Jesus needed to do. Back in John chapter 12, after these quotes, it says, Isaiah said these things in the past because he saw the glory and spoke of him. He saw the glory of God and spoke of him. How was God blinding Israel in these two passages? Isaiah 53. They did, Jesus wasn't the man they were expecting. They didn't want to hear it. Isaiah 6. They didn't want to see God's majesty. They didn't want to see his power. They didn't want to see his glory. And they chose themselves. Unbelief. God gave them what they needed God revealed to the people of Israel 
what was already in their own hearts. Similar, remember back to the story I shared of my wife and I falling in love, ending at this point of we just knew that we couldn't do life without each other. I'm fearful that some of us in this room have lost the sense that we can't do life without Jesus. We've discovered how to do life in a mediocre fashion. We've compromised something that's ultimate and beautiful for just what's right in front of us with our own struggles. Don't fall out of love with who Jesus is. Don't be satisfied with the mundane that maybe you're feeling in this moment as you walk into these rooms. Remember back to the day when you ran through the fields with Jesus. Capture that vision and that that idea of that moment when you discovered who Jesus was for the very first time. Jesus illuminated himself and you felt like you were running through the fields with Jesus, uninhibited, that you could just go and you could be in the presence of God and nothing else mattered in the world. Remember back to that experience, to that day in your life and just remember how simple it was. Remember just how pure it was, how life did not complicate things. When Jesus looks at children in the Gospels and says, we need to have faith like children, I think it's this kind of idea that he's drawing us back to. It's just the simplicity and the pureness of running with him and remembering who he is even as life gets complex. Hear the words of Jesus that we've already seen and immerse yourself back into his presence because Jesus is ultimately beautiful. I close with this last thought as we're looking into this text and we're going to end our time by seeing someone, a group of people who were fearful. Don't be satisfied with a broken relationship with Jesus. There are people here. The authorities is what they're called in the text. They had a flawed relationship. Verse 42, nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus. So we just heard about the unbelief of the nation of Israel as a whole. Now these authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they, those people, the authorities, they love God, uh, sorry, they love the glory of what comes from man more than the glory (coughs) that comes from God. We actually don't know, what we don't know is if um, the faith is genuine of these authorities or not. And that's not what this text is actually leading us to ask or to question. What Jesus is calling us to do is to see what's going on inside this text and reflect in our own hearts, in our own lives. At best, what we do know about these authorities is that their relationship with Jesus, their surrender to him was flawed They did not see him as ultimately beautiful because they worried more about what the Pharisees would think about them. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. That was more important that they they had that. And John sees this so clearly to say they love the glory of man more than they love the glory of God. They missed out on the fullness of Jesus. I think it's possible. I think it's 
really possible for us to have a flawed faith in Jesus. Have it be genuine. Have it to be saving faith. But we're just limping along this life. I fear that one day that we would stand before Jesus, as Philippians chapter 2 says it, that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. When that day comes for us, I fear that some of us will stand in his presence and we will start thinking back about our lives and we wish we would have done it totally different because now being in the presence of Jesus, we can see what's real from what we already experienced. Don't have that vision of looking back and wishing you would have done something different, but pursue Jesus as ultimate. Don't be like these flawed people who um, pursued the glory of man so much more than the glory of God. I end with just this question for us as we contemplate what this means for us. Can you do life without Jesus? Have you been doing life without Jesus? As we end our service today, we're driving towards communion. And if you're an usher and you want to head to the back, I want to invite you to do that now. But leaving this text, leaving this idea, what do we do, Jordan, if we've come to this place and realizing, man, I've just been crippling along, I've been limping along, and I just want to worship the ultimate beauty of Jesus, what do I do? The first thing that I would lead us to do and for any of us in this room, really, is to just confess it, to lay it at the feet of Jesus. There's a man in Mark chapter 9 who interacted with Jesus and saw Jesus heal his son, cast a demon out, and his words to Jesus are, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. For us to start at that place and just confessing, I, I, I believe, Jesus. I have belief, but I need you to help me in my unbelief. For those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus in this room, that's what communion is really all about. For us to interact with God, for him to show us where we're weak, for us to be able to confess it and lean on his strength as a, just a reminder that we cannot do life alone. So I want to go ahead and invite our ushers forward. Um, our ushers are, are bringing the bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. Um, again, Communion is a chance for people who call Jesus their king to be reminded of who he is. And if you're contemplating who Jesus is and you haven't surrendered your life to him, it's fine that you just let the, the elements pass in front of you. But if you're praying for the very first time, Jesus, I want you to be ultimate in my life. This is for you. Or if you want to confess and say, I need more of you, Jesus, because I've been so selfish, this is for you. Or if you walk into this building, a lot like me, of just saying, I can't wait for Easter to come because Jesus has been so good to me. I can't wait to celebrate that. This is for you. We get to celebrate Jesus in the midst of all that. I want to invite our worship team up on the stage. And uh, let's go ahead and pass our elements.